today we'll see in Luke chapter number 18, if you'll turn there with me, a rich young ruler, as he's been known, um, had every reason when he left an encounter with Jesus to praise the Lord, but he's going to leave sorrowful. And what a real shame. This is a, a life that is wasted in him having to see the, uh, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, face to face and walking away sorrowful. This lesson in, in Luke chapter number 18, the story that is told by Jesus, is found in Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke. And it's in all of those stories together that we get the, each one of those descriptions. The rich, uh, young uh, ruler... So far in Luke, we've seen the kind of people that are not in the kingdom. We've seen a Pharisee and a publican praying together. That's the first scene uh, that was set, and they were praying together, one of them beating his chest, and in his pride believed that he could pray his resume to enter into the kingdom. But that poor publican said, Have mercy upon me, a sinner. That God and sinner brought together in that one verse with the word mercy. And so we see the kind of people that won't enter. We also see the kind that will enter into the kingdom. Jesus bringing the children and saying, and bring them to me, forbid them not. They will inherit the kingdom. And those such as these children, those that come to the Father with that same humility, without any pretense to say, Father, you have done uh, the work. And now we will see those that are barred from the kingdom, those that will not enter into uh, today. This is not a parable. This is a real account. The story starts with a character that we can all envy. Um, he appears to have everything that we'd all want. Wealth, youth, and power. And he's reaching for the kingdom. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're going to see a man now reach the day, but he's unwilling to let anything go. He is going to fall short of the glory of God. Verse number 18 of Luke 18, it says, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, speaking to Jesus, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. And then he answers the man's question, which is, Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, Do not kill, Do not steal, Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And the man was ready for that question, and he was ready to give an answer to that. And this was going according to his plan. And he was proud to admit, he said, and he said, All of these I have kept from my youth up. Jesus, not debating with him on these things, verse 22 says this, Now when Jesus heard these things, the answer that is, he said unto unto him, unto that rich young ruler, Yet thou lackest this one thing, so all thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was rich. Now, when, and when Jesus saw that he was sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they heard it and said, after hearing that description, those around him said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things that which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter, who's always anxious to say something, right? Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. 
And he, Jesus, said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake or laid down their lives in missionary service who shall not receive manifold more in the present time and in the world to come life everlasting. Three things I want you to see in this passage today. First of all, life can be eternal starting now. And I'll explain that. Money can be damning if mishandled. And that Jesus is abundantly clear when He calls us to follow Him. Heavenly Father, I ask that You would make, Lord, uh, me removed from this equation. Your Word is so clear. Lord, I pray that Your Word will have its intent in the heart of those that are listening. Lord, I know Your Word will come today upon those that are believing in You. And You have a lesson for us, Lord. You have a message for us today. You have direction for us as we follow You. Father, maybe in this room and maybe listening online, or maybe someday in the future someone will hear this who has yet decided to follow You, that is now measuring the cost. Lord, I pray that You'll help them, Lord. See, I pray that they will yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Life can be eternal starting now. Eternal life or life eternal, some variation of that is used from 50 times in the Bible. The starting point of this story, it says, A certain ruler asks, Good master, how do I inherit eternal life? And then it ends with Jesus speaking, who talks about manifold more in this present time in the world to come, life everlasting. A bookend on this story talking about eternal life. But what a great question. People, you have one chance to walk up to Jesus. You have one chance to walk up to God and ask a question. This is the question to ask. Who, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Um, this is a question that all of us would love to be asked. You know, this seems to be, there's so much must be going on in this person's life to have this type of understanding. Years ago in Northern Ireland with Travis, there was a, I've shared about this youth event uh, where we were at and uh, these kids were giving us a hard time saying words that I never heard this said before, putting words together that I've never heard before, saying things about my mother that I've never heard before. Uh, and uh, just, uh, it was a tough crowd, right? Uh, much harder than anything that I'll deal with here on a Sunday morning even when it's cold and you haven't had your coffee. This was a tough crowd. And Travis, they, if you'll remember at the end, we said, we have counseling rooms. If any of you have any questions, let us know. And they all put their hands up. And we're like, wonderful. It wasn't wonderful, all right? They had questions about all kinds of things, and they weren't ready to act upon any of them. They came asking questions, but they had no heart to respond that day to what um, they were asking. This man comes and he asks the question, what is eternal life? And let's let Jesus answer that before we move on. Jesus provides an explanation in John chapter number 17. This is his prayer. The disciples are there. He looks up to heaven and he says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life. It's not talking about a geographic place. It's not talking about a length of time. When given the definition, when Jesus was asked or is answering what is eternal life, he says it's this, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is eternal life. Knowing God, the knowledge of God, that's eternal life. Eternal life cannot be separated from God and Christ. It is to know Him. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know that it is true and we are in Him is true. Even the Son, Jesus Christ, that 
This is true God and eternal life. It can't be separated from God and Christ. It is to possess the life of God, a deep, intimate knowledge of God. In Philippians, Apostle Paul speaks this way when he says in 3.14, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many be perfect, be thus minded. If anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Knowing God as he has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing God as he's been revealed to us today from his word. This is eternal life. It is a life that God possesses in the heart of a man so that that man can have fellowship with him. It's fellowship with God. In Romans, it speaks about a love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. In 2 Corinthians, it speaks of a light of knowledge of God shining in the face of Jesus. In Philippians 4, it's the peace of God that passes all understanding. 1 Peter 1, it's it's a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Life that makes one spiritually alive, that brings us into true communion with God. And it is a life that is unaffected by death. It, it goes on forever. It speaks to a quality of life. I am not waiting for my death, for my eternal life to start. It started when I came to know the Father through Jesus Christ. And so that's what he offers. It says it's a gift of God. Um, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? It's eternal life through Jesus Christ. The rich young ruler, he didn't have it, and he knew that he needed it. It was the last missing ingredient to an exceptional life. He knew that he didn't know God in an intimate way. He was honest, unlike the Pharisee who prayed his resume at that temple. He knew he was lacking something. He knew about God, but he didn't know God. He knew he didn't because of none of the peace, the joy, the rest, the settled confidence, the fulfillment that was there. And it is available When Jesus was answering, he said, Who shall now receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting? Eternal life was available that day for that man, and he was looking right at it. He was invited into a relationship with Jesus. And how should he receive it? The question, what should I do? You know, it brings a great sadness to people who are overachievers, that are doers, when they're asked when they say, what can I do to get something? And the answer is something that's impossible. It's a real problem for many of us, right? It's a real problem for many friends and family, people that we meet. As they say, just tell me what to do and I will do it. And the answer we give them is that it is impossible in your own self to do it. Nobody enters the kingdom of God through their own efforts or assets, but only as God does for them what they cannot do for themselves. So is that the right place? asking the right question, even seems to have a right understanding of who he's speaking to. He says, good master. They knew that Noah was good, but the father, but he was saying that this man is good, that Jesus is good. This man is like the father, but what he isn't willing to admit is that he is not good. The rich young ruler is not good. When Jesus said to him, why callest thou me good when there's none that good, um, that is God? And then he answers and he says, you know the commandments And when he explained these things, this man said, I am that. That is my identity. I have kept that from my youth. So how does such a young, talented, obedient man leave from here sorrowful? There's a villain in the story. There is an obstacle in a story that you might not often think about. It's money can be damning. Let's talk about money for a moment. 
Some of you are thinking, well, that's not very new for a church, right? That's what we're kind of known for um, on television and all that. We talk about money. But I'm not talking about money that we might ask that you would bring into this building. We're talking about money that might drag you somewhere more than away from this building. We're talking about money that could drag you to hell. We're talking about a love for something that is greater than God that can drag you away from standing there one day looking at an invitation by a Savior and pull you away. In verse number 22, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. That next line when it says, And when he heard this, he was so excited because he came that day asking for eternal life, and there was eternal life. There was the knowledge of God right in front of him, and Jesus said, Go and take care of a few small things, and come and follow me. And the guy, he... He uh, hops after Jesus. He skips, all right? I can't do that. On a good day, definitely with all of you watching, I won't try to skip. But that would seem to be, you ask for something, the one that can give it offers it to you, and then you leave sorrowful, which tells you about something. It tells you about what had gripped his heart. It tells you something about his identity. Such an incredible invitation. Come and follow me. This is life. This is knowing God. Isn't this exactly what he had been looking for? But unfortunately not. He was very sorrowful because he was very rich. Man, very rich. Rich has become part of our identity. A documentary, a film made by Jamie Johnson, who is the heir to the Johnson & Johnson wealth, he looks at the children who are born to very wealthy among the Vanderbilts, the Trumps, the Bloombergs, He talks about the difficulty that these children have in coming to a personal identity as their sense of their selves can be compromised or lost by their wealth. The documentary says that the kids of extreme wealth, the kids of a rich young ruler, often can't separate who they are from what they have. There was a time that this man was not called a rich young ruler. He was just called a child. That all those things in his life hadn't yet gripped his heart. His identity wasn't found in it. I don't know if he came from a wealthy family or not. Very likely he did. But that wasn't who he was. That wasn't his identity. But as we grow older, what we have often becomes who we are. And that's what happened to this man. There's a danger with the ability to accumulate wealth. You see, the danger of money is it appears to validate our ability to be good at living, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be good at dying. Your accumulating of wealth says that you're good at playing the game of life, and you're better than most, and congratulations to that, but it says nothing about your ability to be ready for death, but often people think there's a connection between the two, that I'm good at living, so I must be ready to die. And I ask you parents in here, what if we leave our kids with material possessions that will cause them one day to be sorrowful? What if in the pursuit of making life easier for them, we make it hard for them to enter into the kingdom? This is not just among the kids of wealthy people. Stephanie, I've had children in our home uh, throughout the years being involved in foster care who have lost almost everything. And what they immediately begin to do is to find a corner that is theirs. And then they begin to gather things that have become them because they seem to lose every sense of identity. And rebuilding their identity is made up partially of material things upon this earth because that's what we do, rich and poor, is we find our identity and what we have. It's easy for our lives to revolve around this. What we want really 
It isn't paper that's so important, right? It isn't just, we're not like a DuckTales. Anybody get a DuckTales reference in here? We don't want to just have all of our coins, all right? Um, and just jump into it off a diving board with all these coin, coins like Scrooge McDuck uh, does, right? It isn't about having the money and holding the paper or the metal. What it is, is the goal isn't more money. The goal is living life on our own terms. That's what I like so much about money, is that money gives me options, I have money, so no, I do not have to eat this thing that was served to me. I'll go buy something else, right? I have money, so yes, I can live where I want, drive what I want, do what I want. I want to live life on my own terms. And that's what this man had been doing. He'd been living life unto his own terms. And so we should teach them, our children, how to handle finances, how to make the most of their youth, how to use their God-given influence, but not to find their identity in it. Normal Christianity looks radical today. I'm going to read something I wrote right when Thatcher was being born some 14 years ago about knowing that I was going to raise my kids in a wonderful city. I love this community, but it is also a place in which it's hard to develop a proper worldview. The the horror of the American suburbs is that having met all of our primal needs, you know, real needs, not just needs with an Apple logo on them, we have not turned with still full hands to the world. Instead, like the rich man in Jesus' parable, we have built bigger barns so that we could go on meeting our primitive needs in a high-tech manner. Has there ever in human history been a people who spent so much energy, money, and time on something so base as the satisfaction of our own personal desires for comfort? We have eaten to the full and have not thought of the hungry. Instead, we have thought of dessert. I'm proud to be an American. We're supposedly people who live in certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It does not seem that we have replaced the pursuit of happiness with the pursuit of opulence. If a desire for a house with a two-car garage, white picket fence, boat, vacation home, and whatever else you, you've been told to add to this list is the American dream, then I would like to be un-American in this aspect. If my, own, if my dream only affects the quality of my life, it seems more like a selfish nightmare. What if suburban kids were taught, like good princesses are taught, that they are born into extreme privilege for the good of many? What if instead of uncomfortably avoiding the less fortunate, we show them how limiting our own lifestyles enables us to benefit the less fortunate? See, we don't just teach our kids about generosity so that the needs of underprivileged kids are being met, but we teach them about generosity so that they know that their greatest needs are never going to be met by material wealth. That if we don't handle finances properly, it could be something that drags them from this building. It's something that could drag them from knowing the kingdom. It's something that could drag them from knowing our Savior. But Jesus is abundantly clear. If you'll note the assumption here that what the man asked, that eternal life would depend on something he could do. That's the way he looked. Very practical kind of guy. I'm good at doing What do you have that I can do, Jesus? And Jesus answers in a very practical way, but he goes beyond morals, he goes beyond ability, and he demands an all-embracing personal commitment. That's what Jesus was asking him that day, was an all-embracing personal commitment to him. Verse 22, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Y'all lackest one thing which is to recognize that he was the treasure, that he was the one that was worth selling everything for. 
If I'm the disciples, remember when Michael Jordan went to play for the minor league baseball team? And if I'm on that minor league baseball team, I'm like, we would love to have Michael Jordan play for us. He may not be a very good baseball player, but I bet our buses are going to get a lot nicer uh, when we have somebody like that on our minor league team. I imagine, Brother Bateman, if I'm one of those disciples, I'm like, come on, man. We would really like to have somebody with your skill set on our team. We'd be glad to ride out on the chariot that you rode into that day. But instead of finding acceptable terms and conditions for him, Jesus introduced him to something that was absolutely unacceptable to him, which is why he is going to walk away sorrowful. And instead of making it easy for him to believe and be saved, he made it impossible for him to be saved, so much that those that are listening said, who can be saved? By Jesus' personal omission, he says it is impossible, but thankfully it doesn't stop there, right? It is impossible for men. This command of Christ is impossible, but it is not insane. It is rather sanity preached to a planet of lunatics. One of my favorite quotes there is that this command of Christ is not in, it's, it is impossible, but it's not insane. It's rather sanity preached to a planet of lunatics. So it's here that I fear that we often do a great injustice to our neighbors, to our family, to our community, and to this world when we have to answer this question. Charles Spurgeon, addressing this passage with his congregation in 1882, says this, A very great portion of modern preaching and revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. How can he be healed who is not sick? Or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. Everyone in this age is shallow. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled they came to church, unhumbled they remain in it, and unhumbled they go from it. Let us never do our friends and family the injustice by answering the question of how can I inherit eternal life with any words other than the words of Jesus. Jesus was not concerned about charity. He was concerned about a commitment. Because he had already told us here in the book of Luke that no man can serve two masters. He's either going to hate the one or he's going to love the other. He's going to value one and that his love for the one will be exalted to such a place that it would seem as hate to the other. And you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and material gain. And so we hear an example of a man who just seems he walked up that day, he had everything in his hands, rich, young, influential, Everything that the world had to offer, he had it. He had it in his hands. And he walks up to Jesus. Grant, would you come be Jesus today, all right? Uh, he loves that, all right? Never sitting on the second row again, all right? So you'll, you'll be Jesus here. And he walks up to Jesus, all these things into his hands. He says, how to inherit eternal life? He was staring eternal life in the face. The knowledge of God, knowing him, is where eternal life was going to begin. And Jesus said, come and follow me. Set down what you have in your hands and embrace me. I'm going to, Grant. I know you're British, but here I come. All right? And then he said, embrace me here. And this man here, all he had to do was set those things down so that he could embrace eternal life. 
But those things that he had in his hands, thank you, Grant, had become part of his identity. And so he misses it within feet, within inches. He will walk away that day sorrowful. And then as I told you, Peter can't wait to speak. He's always speaking. Who does Peter speak for? The disciples. It says that often Peter spoke, but he was speaking on behalf of the disciples. He's also speaking for you. He often says what we would say in the same scenario. And then Peter said, Lo, we have left it all, Lord, and we have followed you. And Jesus, not congratulating him, said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that you've left nothing who you will not receive manifold more in this present time in the world to come. Beyond that, he wasn't saying, I'm going to multiply the wealth you set down by 10. He was going to say, what you set down doesn't compare in value to knowing and following me. And that's why I offer you the day, based on God's word, I get to be part of offering you eternal life. Jesus is inviting you to come and follow him. So how he went away with life, without life eternal, Matthew 9.22. And he, Matthew, a cross-reference to this, same story. It says, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Or another way to say it is, he went away sorrowful because great possessions had him. Walking away from Jesus is always walking towards death. One of the first verses you'll ever learn, if you ever come into a building or church like this, is that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You have sin, you have God. You have wages, you have a free gift. You have death, and you have eternal life. And as I often say, you can walk a narrow path down a broad road and end up eternally separated from God. You must follow Christ to have eternal life. That man says, I'm walking a very narrow life. You ask me about the commandments, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do. And he's walking a very narrow path, except he's walking in the wrong direction. He's not following Christ, which means he's walking away from life. He's walking into death. He's walking away from a gift, and he's walking into meriting something. It's a decision that will stay with him for all eternity. And so we should be like the disciples In John chapter number 6, people were following them. Thousands have answered as the rich young ruler has. In John 6, 66, it says, For the time many of his disciples, which just simply means students, people that had been around Jesus, many of them went back and walked no more with him. Millions of people, billions of people at this point, have done what this rich young ruler did, which is, no, I will not accept eternal life today. No, I will not follow you. But let us be just like Peter was when he answered here, all right? He speaks for us again, this time positively, when he says this. Then Simon Peter answered in John 6, 68, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Oh, I wish I could get there on that story. I wish I could get between Jesus and this rich young ruler and stand up to the side and just plead with him and say he has the words of eternal life. He is eternal life. What he has spoken to you, it will provide you exactly what you've been asking for. But he answers differently, doesn't he? He goes back to life on his own terms. He goes back to his own possessions. He goes back to what he believes is good, doing right, making money, pretending that he's good at life, hoping that will mean that he's good at death. He goes completely unprepared for the life to come. And as, the, as it fades the picture out, as this man walks away sorrowful and Jesus is teaching the disciples, he tells them and he reminds them that following him 
is worth walking away from everything. He reminds them that following him is life everlasting. I'm going to ask you to pray with me here in a moment. But some of you are right here. Some of you today, or some they may listen to this someday, is Jesus is standing right here. You know that you don't have that. You know that you know about God. You know that you've kept some of the rules that you've been taught through the years. But that intimate knowledge of Him, you know that's not happening. You know that He doesn't live inside of you and you've been following Him through guidance. And the question is, what is it that you're holding in your hands today that you need to sit down and say, whatever this is, this pride that maybe I'm having, or all these things that I've had, I'm willing to set these down. I want to set them down because the identity that I currently have, I hate in comparison to having a relationship with Him. And I plead with you today to make that decision. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how clear your word is. If left to me, Lord, I would never be able to explain these words of eternal life, but you gave it to us so clearly today. And just like you were present in this story, Lord, I know through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you are bidding people today to come and to follow you. You've extended that invitation, and now there has to be a response. Father, I pray that no one would walk away sorrowful today. Eternal life, Lord, is not, I know it's not something we wait for upon death, but it's something that you are offering to us right now. With every head bowed, every eye closed, eternal life is available for you today. John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Believe his words. Obey Him. Follow Him. Put your belief and faith in Him today. And Jesus prayed for you. Jesus, on His earthly ministry, prayed for those that would follow. So as I pray for you today, know that Jesus already has, when He said in John seventeen twenty, Neither pray for I these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word. Would you believe today? I'm going to ask that you stand with me, continue to pray there um, in your seat. As you stand, the altar is open to you if you would like uh, to pray. But as you're standing, I would, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in here today and you know that you're standing at that same place in life that that rich young ruler was, and you know what it is that is in your hand that you have to set aside, would you be honest in the story and say, I don't want to walk away sorrowful today. I want to cry out to God and I want to receive that knowledge of eternal life. There's no one looking around, every head bowed and every eyes closed. But if that's your story today, if that's where you're at, would you raise your hand so that I could pray for you and you would make that acknowledgement before the God of heaven. Those of us in here profess to be believers, be following Christ, let's be reminded today that we have left nothing that he has not already repaid us many times over. There's such great joy in that. There should be no murmuring. There should be no complaining. We have left nothing to follow Him. And when He calls us to take another step of obedience and following Him, why would we ever question? Because we know that He has more for us than we could ever imagine. Help us, Lord. Take inventory today. Not just upon what we own, what is in our checking accounts, or what we have available to us, But Lord, help us make sure that the things of this world do not entangle us. Help us, Lord, raise children 
who see that following you is of greater value than anything that they could ever own in this world. 